And um, I really appreciate the prayer, to be fair, because <laughs> I feel like sometimes I'm the only one praying for a good message on, on Sunday uh, just because I'm the one who's giving it. But it's, it really means a lot when, when you pray for that too. Because, you know, we, we're here and we are... We come under the, the word here and we come under the Holy Spirit. And so if, if something's going to happen here, if God's going to turn up, if God's going to reveal himself, then it's up to him to do that. So prayer is absolutely important. Also, can I just say I love the front row here. Uh, at, at a um, If you're at a theme park or, or at a show, that's called the wet zone. So uh, be, be watching out for the, for the spit in that zone. Um, you, you can't ask for your money back. So uh, don't, don't try. I had the, the, well, happy Father's Day. If you're a father here, um, congratulations on making it this far in, in your life. Um, it's, you know, it's a great privilege being a father. And for those of you who are going to be fathers in, in the future, uh, it's, a, it's a great blessing. So happy Father's Day to you all. We actually do have a gift if you are a father and you weren't here this morning. We do have a, a table of gifts and we would love to just bless you uh, with that. So please uh, feel free to, to take one. We'll try and have uh, somebody up the back there to hand it out uh, to you. Uh, at the end of the service. Uh, I had the privilege this week of attending a sort of conference uh, retreat thing for a bunch of pastors around Australia. And uh, they were from a very diverse group of churches. There were churches of Christ represented. There were Baptists. There were uh, Pentecostal. There were Uniting. There were Catholic. And uh, it was a very eclectic mix of people. But, you know, the one thing that all of us had in common was that Everyone has a desperate desire to see Jesus made known to this country and to this world. And uh, it was incredible to, to participate in just that environment where everybody's thinking, you know, how can we do this better and how can we do it together? And uh, it was, you know, a reasonably life-changing time. It's certainly a perspective-shifting time for me. And one of the things that the people have in common is that they all uh, use the program called Alpha. Now, who here has done an Alpha course before at some point in their life? Great. So uh, you people uh, know what it is. You know what it's like. Now, I'll have to admit, I've, I've, I never sat under one until I actually delivered one because I just kind of assumed that this thing is just Christianity 101. You know, I I've, I've grew up in the church. I kind of passed that. And I thought it was kind of this big questions, apologetics type environment. And I was sorely mistaken because when Alpha is used properly, it is pure evangelism. It is purely creating a space where people who don't know Jesus can come with, you strip away all of the stuff that we've made into church, which, you know, some of it is, it's, it's, let's be honest, it's a bit weird if you've not been in that environment before. If you've grown up with no frame of reference to what church is, some of that stuff is a bit difficult to sort of just put yourself into that environment. And so Alpha is about taking that stuff away and actually, you know, one of the main things about it is demonstrating hospitality and uh, showing acceptance to people and presenting the message to them in a way that, you know, gets them to make their own journey and make the decision for themselves. And so there are, there's lots of great stories from these churches about how Alpha is doing an incredible thing in bringing people to faith in their community. Can I just say that we can create an, a great experience here on a Sunday. We can come here and enjoy each other's company. We can, you know, we, we love our cafe. Our cafe is awesome. But if we as Christians are committed to coming and having a party and just getting fat and happy here, we're not doing what we were called to do, which is to reach the world with the gospel. 
And so that's why we're making some of the changes that we are making in order to make room and to, and to create an environment that is invitational. And we're, we're happy to, to bring along people who don't know Jesus. And we're also starting to shift that, that cultural identity of, of who we are actually as, as a church. We want to be discipling. We want to be growing in our holiness and our obedience uh, of God. And we want to be bringing people to faith. We are absolutely committed to that. And so we're really hoping that you'll get behind some of the stuff that, that is going to be coming because we want to make it easy for you and we want to take away all the stuff that Christians get scared about when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel because the enemy is winning if you're afraid of evangelism. God called all of us to make disciples. He wasn't talking to a small percentage of people gathered when he said, go into the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you and baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I hope, I hope that you're prayerfully along for the ride and I hope that you get behind this stuff when it happens. And we'll, we'll give you uh, in, in due time things that you can, uh, you know, dates and times and things that you can actually do to get involved and to start to see that happening. And you know what? I'm so excited about it. I, I could spend probably all of tonight just talking about the way that that works, but I, I would just love for you to see it. I would just love for you to see how possible it is for people, because there are people out there who need to know Jesus. There are people out there who are a lot closer than you think to knowing Jesus. And I just wish that you could you could see how exciting it is to watch the, the gospel fall into place in their heart. So that's something that, that we're really excited about in, in the future. Now, we're starting this series called Glory Belongs. And the inference of that statement is that glory belongs to God. And uh, across chapter 12 of, of the book of Acts, we'll see in three separate scenes that glory belongs to God in any and every circumstance. There is not a single situation or a single uh, category of events where God is not being glorified. So we're going to see that glory belongs to God today in our trial. Next week, glory belongs to God in our triumph. And then Liam gets a really exciting passage. Glory belongs to God in the end. Look forward to that uh, graphic uh, sermon there. So, this concept of glory is something that you would scarcely hear outside of a religious context, but there may be some times that you would have heard uh, about glory even outside of a, of a church setting. You know, we can say that the sun was shining gloriously in the heavens, uh, you know, that bright visual thing that, you know, kind of wows us. Uh, or you could, you could talk about the victory of a sporting team as kind of a glorious victory and I was there at the Matilda's quarterfinal. We were pitch side. I have a video of the, of the moment where it happened and Gwen, my sister up the back, was literally standing behind the goal. She was a volunteer at the event. So standing behind the goal, I think you nearly passed out or threw up multiple times. She's nodding her head. Yeah, that was a glorious victory, absolutely. But we should be careful with uh, understanding the world's idea of glory because there was this one moment before Beck and I were married where I was getting perhaps a bit too comfortable entering her uh, family's house. And I did so one time without knocking and made my way in to uh, find one of her brothers who shall remain nameless. Uh, we, we met in the hallway and he was in his full glory having come out of the shower. Uh, and I, I, I've never had such control over my eye contact with a person as I did uh, in that moment. We had a very brief and polite conversation uh, and then um, he turned around and walked away. 
Um, and uh, I'm only a little bit traumatized from that event. But this word glory can have uh, multiple ideas in, it, in our mind. So we should talk about God's glory. In the New and the Old Testament, there are two different words for this concept of the glory. In the New Testament, uh, it means essentially reputation. It is somebody's reputation based on the proof of character or of deeds uh, in the past. And it's pretty much exclusively used in a, in a positive sense, the glory of God compared to, you know, the glory of kings, the glory of man, all that kind of thing. In the Old Testament, the word for glory actually means weight. It means heaviness. And so somebody's glory is that there's, there's kind of a gravitas, right? If you've heard that word before, there's, there's a gravity to their person and to their presence. And so when Moses uh, says to God, you know, show me your glory, we have this moment where God has to kind of hide Moses in, in the cleft of a rock and as he passes by, because he can't actually bear the full weight of God's glory. He couldn't be in the presence of God with such his, you know, literally weightiness and, and actually, you know, survive the encounter. And so God hides him in the cleft of the rock, passes by, and then he just sees kind of the, the back of God. What did that look like? I've got no idea. But he sees the back of God and he hears words, you know, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious, something like that, right? And so this moment where God's presence is there in such gravity, such weight, his glory, we should understand, is not just about his reputation, not just about how big and how wonderful he is, but it can be experienced through simply the gravity of his presence. It is actually a revealing of God. And look, we could spend our whole night and more uh, unpacking and exploring the, the theology of, of what glory means. But uh, we should just try and focus in on, on this idea that there's a, there's a weight, there's a gravity to God's person and who he actually is, which is unmatched. And do you know what happens, you, you science brains out there, what happens when something gets super heavy, really heavy, like so heavy? It develops gravity. And God is like that. His entire person is so weighty, so full of glory that it creates its own gravity. And you know, if we were to take this to an eschatological sense, which is just a big word to say how things end, right? The end times. In, in, in the end times, the Bible tells us that God will be all in all. And so his, his weightiness of his person is forming this gravity like a black hole that sucks everything in so that all of creation all of the universe is heading towards that moment when God will be all in all and everything will be his glory as it gets drawn into his person. And if you're following this idea, then, then it makes sense why worship is such a, a powerful and a fulfilling and a meaningful experience because worship is essentially shutting everything else out and focusing on and participating in the trajectory of all of the universe. It's saying nothing else matters. God's glory is all that matters and we are heading there. And it's why such powerful things can happen during times of worship. And it also means that that should be the purpose of our life, to see God glorified, to see his glory, because the whole universe is heading towards that end anyway. Anything else is, is sometimes one or two degrees, you know, north or northeast. Well, maybe we're trying to run 90 degrees or 180 degrees the other direction. Everything will end up in God's glory. But the question is, why is that relevant to you and to me? Do you wake up in the morning thinking about God's glory? 
Because I tend to think about the the amazing uh, opinion of my son as to what a fully eaten apple looks like. That's the kind of thing that that I think about in the morning. I end up throwing out, you know, much more fruit than than uh, I, I desire. But what about glory? You, you don't think about glory when you when you're you know going about your daily business. So why should it matter to you? Well, it should matter because as we've already established, everything is working towards God's glory, but God's glory is going to come either for your benefits or it's going to come at your expense. And we're going to see in this chapter that there are various uh, people and some of them see God's glory revealed for their benefits and some of them see God's glory revealed at their expense. So would you open to Acts chapter 12? Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So what does about that time mean? Because if you were like me, you're kind of assuming that we're still sort of in early days of church territory here. We've been tracking all the way through from the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon. We've got through, they've, they've sort of wrestled with some problems. You had Ananias and Sapphira, you had uh, various uh, meetings, and then you had the stoning of Stephen, you had uh, Saul come along. And so we think that we're sort of still pretty early in the church. But you might be shocked to know that this is 14 years into the history of the church. 14 years into the history of the church. And there, there are a few sort of chronological markers that we can point out in uh, this narrative that sort of give us those clues. Uh, But if you remember, what year uh, was Jesus born? (laughs) Regan's too clever for me. It's a trick question, all right? The the year zero is meant to be, you know, the year Jesus was born, but the the guy who calculated it originally got it. Uh, a bit off. So Jesus was actually born, you know, somewhere between four and six years before he was born, which is the case for no one else uh, in this room. So if he was born in in roughly, you know, four to six BC, that's counting backwards from zero, and he died when he was how old? 33. So he died in in around, let's say, uh, 27 AD. Okay, so you've got uh, Pentecost, and uh, the coming of the Spirit, Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, all of that stuff's happening in roughly 27 AD. And then uh, you've got the church is being born. Now, we're told here that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. You've also got some other chronological clues there about um, uh, Agabus, we heard, uh, who foretold a famine. And it says that this took place in the days of Claudius. Now, Claudius, the emperor, if anyone knows your, your Roman history, he didn't become the emperor until the year 41 AD. So from 27 to 41, we have an, an absolute minimum of 14 years until we get to this point. And so we could, t- we could talk about Paul's uh, missionary journeys, and I could give you all that chrono- chronological information, but I, won't, I will spare you that because you're probably not that interested. However, I will give you a history lesson in the Herods because I find it interesting and you've got nothing better to do for the, for the next little while. Because when we see the word Herod, when we see the, the name Herod, uh, we assume that it's kind of the same guy. But actually in the New Testament, there are three Herods. It's actually a family and a popular name in, in the family. They just kept calling them Herod. So you have a grandfather and you have a father and you have uh, a son. And these Herods uh, are the governors of Judea at 
various times. But all of them are kind of cut from the same cloth in terms of how they live their life, how they conduct themselves as a leader and as a ruler. So I'm just going to give you a, a bit of a picture about these Herods because I think that there is something that we can learn from it. So the first Herod is called Herod the Great or King Herod. He was the first to get this title king, but you should know that the Roman system had no kings. So he wasn't actually a king, but he, he desperately wanted the title king, which gives you kind of a, a bit of a, a snapshot of his, his personality. He uh, is very famous for doing lots of uh, massive building works, uh, which we could talk about. The temple in Jerusalem at the moment, he was the one who big the, built the big temple mount, which still stands there. He also built the fortress at Masada. I've, I've been there. It's pretty incredible. These things are you know, still around 2,000 years later. It's, it's amazing. Uh, he did a lot of stuff. And uh, he, so his, his reign, that's when he was in power in Judea, was from about 37 BC to 4 BC, which is uh, during the reign of uh, Augustus. Augustus came a, a little bit after that. But if he's given the title king, it means essentially he has politically maneuvered uh, in order to impress the people above him, and he has grown his influence to the point where he's significant enough to be given the title of king. He was a, actually a Roman governor, and if you know the way the Roman system was split up back then, you had the emperor, and then he was split into different regions. And so the governor's responsibility was to essentially keep anyone from rebelling against the Roman Empire and keep the taxes flowing. And so if you were a, a governor you were essentially in a, in a very powerful uh, position because you had to squash any, any insurrection and you had to essentially farm the taxes. So we might say that people like Herod uh, back in that day were making bank, right? That's, that's a, a, a very lucrative business to be in. But the Herods had a particular strategy uh, which they employed because they were given the province of Judea, which was known in the Roman Empire as the Bogey province because <laughs> it's full of Jews, it's kind of easy to, to rule other people, but when you've got this group of people who, who say, you know what, I actually don't worship your emperor. I have my own God. I have my own rules. I have to go to the temple. I'm bound by a certain thing during the day. Uh, one day a week, I can't work. It makes it very difficult to, to run that place. And so the Herods, starting with Herod the Great, uh, came up with a very uh, political, a very clever strategy in order to rule that area. What they did was that they became Jewish enough to get the respect of some of the Jewish community, particularly the leaders. But they were never Jewish enough that they weren't happy to live a lavish lifestyle and they weren't happy to, to gain power and they weren't happy to, to play the political, political game with Rome. And so some of the things that King Herod the Great did, obviously he built the temple. He built this enormous, magnificent temple for the Jews and they were like, because it got destroyed, right, earlier when... Um, Israel had gone into captivity, had been destroyed a couple of times. So he's known for building the great temple in Jerusalem, the fanciest it's ever, ever been. But, you know, interestingly, theologically, the Spirit of God was never there. The Spirit of God never inhabited the temple that Herod built. But he built this big temple. The other thing that he did was that he married a Jewish princess. He himself was of Edomite ancestry, but he married a Hasmonean princess who was, who was somebody who was in a Jewish family in order that he could be actually kind of a kinsman with the Jews. And so he played this sort of political game with the Jews of like, I'm on your side, but not enough that I have to give up, you know, what I want. But the most significant thing about Herod the Great is that we read in Matthew chapter 2 that when he hears of another king, 
being born in his territory, he thinks that's not on. King Herod is the only king around here. And he had to earn his kingship. He had to kiss some Roman feet and line some Roman pockets in order to get there. So who does this guy think he is who's, who's simply born a king in my region? And so we know that he has the encounter with the wise men and uh, eventually he orders the slaughter of infants in Bethlehem in order to stop this king from growing up. So King Herod directly opposed the mission of Christ and uh, just, just get ready. Gear yourself up for two weeks' time when Liam gets to explore the end of, of the Herods because that's pretty awesome. After King Herod the Great, you had his son, a Herod Antipas, also called Herod, right? So if you read in the Bible, it'll just say Herod. Uh, and we see him in Matthew chapter 14. So he reigned in, in Judea between 4 BC and 39 AD. So an incredibly long reign. And he was kind of the same st- sort of strategy with the Jews. He's like, I'm Jewish enough. I'm going to do things that I know you're going to like, but, you know, only as far as it suits me. And so we have uh, this episode in Matthew chapter 14 where Herod Antipas appears and uh, it results in the killing, the beheading of John the Baptist because uh, Herod Antipas had divorced his wife in order to marry his half-sister whose name was Herodias, right? Husband and wife, Herod and Herodias, Patrick and Patricia, anyone? No, they're not here, so... Herod and Herodias, but John the Baptist was like, you can't marry your half-sister. I'm sorry, God doesn't like that. You claim to be Jewish. You claim to be leading these Jewish people, but you can't do that. And so Herodias gets incredibly jealous, and you could read the story in Matthew 14, but it results in John being brought in and beheaded. Now, Herod Antipas, uh, he, his ambition, or actually kind of his wife's ambition, sort of was his undoing, because he never earned the title king. He didn't grow his region uh, large enough to be given that title. And his his wife, Herodias, was, was ambitious on his behalf and was like, you know, you're a slacker, right? All of these other governors, they're getting, you know, they're being called tetrarchs and they're, you know, but, you, but you're not doing anything. Why don't you go to the emperor, go to Tiberius and throw that guy under the bus? Throw, the, throw him under the bus because then maybe you're going to get his region and then you'll be big enough and, and you'll be king and then I'll be queen. So Herodias sends him on that mission and it totally backfires because he gets to Tiberius and he throws this other guy under the bus and then Tiberius is like, not happening on my watch and he exiles him to Spain. He loses his uh, region and we're told that he simply dies in Spain. So that's Herod Antipas. And then you have his son who is called Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa is the character that we have in here. Now, his reign was from 41 AD to 44 AD. That was in the region of Judea, okay? But prior to that, he was a governor. He was a, a, a governor for the Roman Empire, but just not in the region of Judea. Now, Herod Agrippa did earn the title king, which we can see in this uh, verse here. But he was probably the most savvy of all of them. He was the one who was able to politically maneuver his way through the trickiest of situations to get to the place of prominence that he got. Because by the time he comes to uh, to be the governor of Judea in 41 AD, he's outlasted two emperors, right? Tiberius and then you had Gaius Caligula. And Herod Agrippa has somehow managed to not just maintain control but grow his influence through the transition of two different Emperors, And if you understand anything about ancient history, like that's just unheard of. 
because when Claudius becomes emperor in AD 41, Herod is somehow involved in the process of installing him as emperor. And so as soon as he becomes emperor, he gets the region of Judea. He gets the title of king. He gets this, this prominence and, the, and this sort of grand reputation and this idea. And Herod Agrippa made it. He made it. And he, he used the same strategy that both his father and his grandfather had used for these Jewish people, which is, which is I'm going to just please you enough as far as it suits me. I'm going to put on the show so that you respect me. And at one point, he even uh, is, is doing what's called a reading of the law of kings from Deuteronomy 17. And, and the law says that you shall have no king over you who is not your brother. And Herod Agrippa wept in front of the Jewish leaders as he remembered his Edomite ancestry. And then the Jewish leaders said, no, 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 no. Remember that your grandmother was, was a Hasmonean and, and that's what we're going to count. You, it's okay. It's okay, Herod. You're one of us. You're one of us. And so he's able to maneuver himself in, in those positions. And yet at the same time, he, he does things that are just totally against Jewish faith. You see, these three men had ruled the region of Judea for the better part of 80 years. And all of them share the same characteristics, is that they are seeking ambition and glory for themselves. They're seeking the title of king. They're seeking to put themselves not only in a place of power, but as kings over God's people, over the people of Israel. Even more significant than that, every single one of them is responsible for directly opposing the mission of Christ. Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus when he was a boy. Herod Antipas is not just the one who killed John the Baptist, but he was also involved in the trial of Jesus, condemning Jesus uh, to death, if you remember. And Herod Agrippa here laid violent hands on the church, and we'll see that he's responsible for killing some of the disciples and imprisoning Peter. Each of them positioned themselves directly opposed to God because they wanted the place for themselves. Every Jew alive at that point had only known Herods to be in charge of Israel. And so you would forgive them for questioning whether God was in fact in charge of their area. All they'd known was that Herod's had been the king. And you see, this brings up a, a very important point because you'll see in the end how it works out for the line of Herod's, those people who seek to exalt themselves, but not only that, those people who seek to be kings over God's people and the people who seek to oppose the mission of God. But you need to know that even when it doesn't look like it, the world still belongs to God. Even if it looks otherwise, the world is still God's. And so these Jews had known nothing else but this foreign power, this kind of half-Jewish leader, but they were still under the thumb of the Romans. And so you'd forgive them for thinking that, you know what, maybe God isn't as powerful or, or maybe, you know, we've done the wrong thing or God's not working things uh, for, for our good. And here's the truth, is that there will always be opposition to the work of God. There will always be powers seeking to oppose God's work in this world because the stakes are high and there are powers that don't like what God wants to do and what God is ultimately going to achieve. There are powers that want glory from this, for themselves and not to see God glorified. 
You know, this is true in like a geopolitical sense in, in terms of, you know, history and, and rulers and leaders and things like that. But it's also true in a personal sense. Because there are going to be things in this world that seek to take you off the trajectory that God wants you to be on. You know, each one of us has a common calling, which is to belong to God, which means that we are to be set apart, we're to be holy, and we're to fulfill the commission that God has given us by listening and following. And anything that takes your eyes off that is an opposition, and it means that the enemy is trying to win. Some of those come from outside ourselves, and and they're pretty easy to identify. The world that we live in is so busy that we barely have time for God, certainly not to be devoted to God. Technology is, is a massive distraction. Technology is capturing our attention and our time, and we think, you know, this is okay, this is my time, I'm happy to be scrolling through and and to be spending my time this way. This is filling my tank. But at the same time, there's only so so many minutes in a day. There's only so many hours in a week. And if God's not getting a significant amount of those hours, are we actually devoting ourselves to God? Technology, and and I I say this as somebody who, who faces those same struggles. Addictions can take our eyes off Christ and they can fill our thoughts and our hearts with lies about the the power of God to free us from those things and to make us holy, to take us on his trajectory. There are lots of things that seek to distract us which come from outside. And you know there are also things that come from inside which can take us away from that. There might be hidden vows or lies that we've come to believe about who God is, about who we are. We might think, you know what, that, that spiritual principle or, or that message or, that you know, I've seen that testimony and that power, God can do that for someone else, but he can't do it for me. You know, that person is so sold out for God, they're, they're on fire, they, they love him, they, they pray all the time, you know, they're, they're, they're able to witness to other people comfortably and, you know, that's, that's great for them, but somehow it's just not for me. There are always going to be things that are seeking to take your eyes off God and seeking to derail your obedience of him, your holiness and your obedience. At the same time, not everything that is bad is a work of the enemy, all right? And some people fall into this trap of kind of like over-spiritualizing it. Like, you know what? I've just been so oppressed today. The enemy's just really trying to get me down. You know, when I ordered my uh, extra hot uh, half-strength decaf vanilla latte, the barista didn't make it on soy milk like I asked. You know, you, like, you don't need to re- rebuke the, the spirit of a, of a lazy barista. You just need to change your coffee order to something a bit sensible. Right, we're not persecuted by, by everything that happens to us that, that is bad. But can I just suggest to you that if the enemy is able to use absolutely anything to get you frustrated, right, to get you uh, upset, to, to get you feeling, you know, selfish or, or hurt, then he's getting you to walk in, in the flesh and not in the spirit. Right? And as people who belong to God, we need to be walking in the spirit. And every, you know, holy and powerful person that I know pays attention to those little things. They know that it's important to be faithful to God in the little. Our priorities should be holiness and obedience in all things. All right, we need to see how glory belongs to God in this situation in the trial. So from verse 2, 
we see that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, that's his political strategy, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, which we know is the, the feast that the Jews hold last uh, a number of days. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. A squad has four soldiers in it, four squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers, marking one fisherman. Imagine that. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, these are very dark times for the church. There is nothing positive in that little section there. The church is hurting. Jesus had three close friends, Peter, James, and John, and here we see two of them basically taken completely out of action. You know, James, who doesn't get much of a word in, in the New Testament, is simply glossed over in a very short verse. He, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. I mean, that must have been devastating for that community there. Here we are 14 years into the life of the church, and these apostles are still the leaders of this movement. Peter is the one who had all of this, you know, these powerful messages from the day of Pentecost and they've been learning from them. And then suddenly James is dead. Peter's in prison. There's, there's no hope about getting him out. The, the church is hurting as, at this moment. But there are two mistakes that we can make when we read this passage. And the first is to think that God is not being glorified in this situation. Peter in prison, James has been killed, the church is praying. God is being glorified. And the second mistake that we can make is to think that Peter, who was alive, was more blessed than James, who was killed for his faith. <clears throat> If we look at that and we feel sorry for James who doesn't get much of a mention and we think, oh, I'd much rather be Peter, then we've missed a significant point here. You know, there's another historical source which tells us about James's death. And I just have to preface this because I, you know, like to consider myself a reliable historian. But this source comes from a, 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 a medieval uh, guy called John Fox. It's the, uh, his book of martyrs. And generally speaking, John Fox has pretty robust historical process, but in this one story, there's nothing to corroborate it, right? He says Clement of, of Alexandria tells us this, but we can't find where Clement of Alexandria said that. So in terms of like this is confident history, well, I can't tell you that, but I mean, there's no reason to doubt it. Okay, are we happy with that preface? There you go. So he tells us the story of James's death. And see what happens is James is accused by somebody and Herod brings him in for questioning. And I can imagine what James was accused of because Herod rocks up. He's now the new governor of this Judean place and he's just been given the title king and he comes and he announces himself as the king of Judea. And James is there as a leader of the church, encouraging his people, there is one king. His name is not Herod. You might have experienced King Herod's for the last 80 years. You as a, as a however old they might have been, 30 to 50 years old, life expectancy or even less than that. You may have not known anything else other than the King Herod, but there is one king and his name is Jesus. And you shouldn't be giving your, your allegiance to King Herod. You should be following Jesus. And so in typical Herodian fashion, he doesn't like that. So he calls him in. But we're told by this source that such was the grace and the, the conviction and the power of James in giving his 
his defense, that his very accuser made a confession of faith at that moment and joined James and was killed alongside James. Now, you tell me God isn't glorified in that. Now, here's the thing that we have to kind of wrestle with, and it's going to sound wrong at first. God's glory in the trial depends on you. All right, let me say it in a way that doesn't quite sound like heresy. God is always going to have his glory. The extent to which God is glorified in your trial will depend on your response, will depend on your reaction and how you do it. Do you think that God would have been as glorified in that situation if James had, had you know, sat cowering or had renounced his faith? No. But God will have his glory and God is, glory belongs to God in our trial. Now, you may be in a situation of trial. You might be like James. He's committed himself to the cause. He knows with every ounce of his being that he is doing the right thing, but he's not being listened to. It's only causing trouble for him. He's being ignored by the people who should be listening to him. He's being put down. Maybe some some people are falsely accusing you. Maybe you know that what you're doing is is the right thing, but you've been doing it for ages and it's not bringing any results. Or maybe you're in a situation like Peter, whose whose heart is for God and he seeks to, to, to glorify God and be obedient to God, but he's trapped. He's been captured. You want to do the right thing, but but you're oppressed and you're silenced and there's a strong man who has held you captive and he seeks for you to be silenced and for you to be bound. Or maybe you're in a trial like the church who feels like there is no hope. It feels like they're, they're defeated. They've lost close relationships. They've lost their source of comfort. They've lost their mentors. They're just overcome with a sense of grief and a sense of hopelessness. And you know, we see throughout the book of Acts that when it comes to these moments, what we need to do is to lift our eyes Lift our eyes and see the situation how God sees it. Because God is working for his glory, which means you're good. We need to understand that even when it doesn't look like it, the world is still God's. And if you are suffering right now, if you're going through a trial, you need to hang on to that. The world still belongs to God and you belong to him. Is he going to let you down? Is he going to let you down? So I want to give you five ways that we can glorify God when we're going through a trial. Because as we know, all of creation is heading to that one trajectory where God will be glorified. And if we can face that way and we can glorify God in our trial, here are five ways that you can do that. The first one is through your perspective. If you can lift your eyes to see that God is in control and that he always has been in control, despite what's going on around you, then that perspective glorifies God. Consider the, the opposite. If, if you're going through all of these, these trials and these difficulty and these, and these sufferings and you think, you know what, God isn't good to me. God lied to me. God's not powerful in this situation. I'm, I, I'm angry, I, I'm, 
I, I don't believe God anymore. God's not being glorified through your perspective. And the result is that actually that perspective is going to be proven wrong eventually. Now, I want to just treat this a little bit, a little bit sensitively, sensitively for a moment because God is not afraid of your emotions. God is not afraid of you experiencing uh, deep things. And we see all throughout Scripture people sort of coming to God all through the Psalms and, and through the book of Job and even through, you know, throughout the Old Testament of, of complaining to God like, why is this going on? Why is this going on? Can I say that God understands how you're feeling? God understands what you are going through. He put himself into that situation so that he could understand what you're going through. But he wants to get you to the point where you are able to say, you know what, even though, even though it doesn't look like it, God, I believe that you're in control. I believe that you're in control. And that perspective glorifies God. And not only does it glorify God, it leads to God's peace. And that's the second thing that brings glory to God in trial is your peace. And if you remember when Jesus is in the boat and there was a raging storm going on, all of these hardened fishermen are fearful for their lives, and yet Jesus is sleeping in the boat. How does he sleep through that storm? Because he has peace through it. And whatever storm that you're going through, if you have access to God's peace, then that brings God's glory. We say, wow, how is that person able to do that? And you say, well, it's actually not me. It's God. It's God's peace that comes into my life. And you know what? We had a season a couple of years ago where um, my wife, Beck, was, was incredibly ill. And yet, yet throughout that, God supplied us with this unbelievable peace. He also gave us a promise. We knew that the season was going to be short. But there was this unusual peace about the whole thing. And the thing about peace is that it results in perseverance. And your perseverance brings glory to God. If you can get your perspective shifted so that your eyes are up and you say, you know what, this is hard, but God's in control and he's given me peace, then that's what you need to persevere, to keep going, to simply press on. And can I just encourage you for a moment here that you're here, which means that you're persevering. Your troubles have not overcome you. Jesus is still giving you strength. He is still making it possible for you to face against those trials and say, no, God is bigger. God is bigger than you. And I believe in spite of all of the difficulty, and I understand it's difficult. It's beyond difficult sometimes. And we're exhausted. But if you are here, you are glorifying God through your perseverance. Some of you need to know that. We can persevere. And you know, the other thing that comes out is praise. And this glorifies God in our trial. Because any Christian can praise God when things are going well. You know, my bank account's looking good. My house is in good order. My children are following the Lord. There is very little difficulty. Anyone can, can praise God in those circumstances. But it's only the person who has this lifting of the eyes perspective and has a mature faith that can say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know what? At the end of my life, I've got lots of things that I want to 
do or, or experience or tick off. But there's one that's, that's non-negotiable. If nothing else gets done, then the one thing that I want is for people to see my life and, and see that God is glorified. Nothing else matters. Nothing else comes close to that. Everything that is good about my life comes under that, that God is glorified through that. And I hope that that's your desire as well, that at the end of your life you can look back and you go, you know what, God is glorified. And that's enough. And the last thing to glorify God in the trial is through your prayer. You know, we could talk lots about the ways that you that you pray, but I think that often in church we basically make people feel bad about how they pray or how they don't pray. So I want to say that praying at all brings glory to God. The fact that you go to prayer brings glory to God. Even if you're yelling at him and railing at him and saying, you know, God, why? God, why is this going on? And we see that actually prayer is a path to the peace. When you look through the Psalms and you see that David processes, he processes, he processes everything. He's got so much difficulty in his life and he just works through it and he pours it out to God. And as he pours that, you know, the yuck that's coming outside from inside of him because of his experience, it's replaced with comfort, with God's presence. And so prayer, regardless of what you're saying, don't feel like you have to pray what God wants to hear. All right, can I just set you free from that? Right, that, that if you refuse to pray or you, you are, you're not motivated to pray because you think, you know what, I know what's the theologically correct thing to say here and I can't muster that at the moment from inside of me, just throw that one in the bin. Because God wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear your heart. He doesn't want you you to give him a rehearsed line. He wants to comfort you. And so the fact that you pray at all brings glory to God. You know, we were in Sydney last weekend and uh, was it last weekend or the weekend? I can't remember. Times. Anyway, recently we were in in Sydney and uh, we were catching the tram into Circular Quay and uh, we had our Opal cards that we were tapping uh, on and off and we made the tram journey and then we got to Circular Quay and then we went to tap off we went, Evelyn, where's, where's your Opal card? And um, she's like, I don't know. I'm like, oh, she's left it. You know, we, we loaded it up with, with money that we knew we would need for the whole trip. And this was literally the first trip that we were doing. And we were like, oh, lost the card. So we're like, okay, let's get back on the tram and go back and let's see if it's there. Uh, and so we hopped on the tram and then we said, you know what, Evelyn, we need to pray that God's going to look after your Opal card. That's our, that's our first response. And so we said, Lord Jesus, just protect her Opal card. May it be exactly where, where we left it and may no one pick it up. And then we made the tram journey all the way back to near where our hotel was. And I could see as we approached the tram station that her card was just sitting there. And I said, praise God for encouraging the faith of, of my child in that situation. And you know what? That was actually a good experience because uh, we almost lost something much more precious while we were on that trip. Uh, we almost lost my son um, in, a, in a park. Anyway, that's a story for another time. But the faith was good. We'd, we'd already seen God look after something that, that had been lost. The fact that you are going to prayer glorifies God. So can you remember those five ways? And can you be encouraged that God is going to get the glory Everything's going to be uncovered at, at some points, but you can glorify God now through your response. 